Our focus today, um, my heart is just drawn back to the Exodus passage of God declaring great comfort to us. We can pray. Tonight we're here for prayer, so we often think and focus on the prayer aspect of it. We can pray because God is faithful. Moses could put his request into God because of God's declaration of himself. God says, I am the Lord God, the Lord God, merciful and, and gracious. Um, this, this is what he said. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So we are invited to pray because of the very nature of God. He is a merciful. He's long-suffering. He's slow, gracious. He is gracious, full of grace and extending grace uh, and by very definite, full of that grace. Abounding, we talked about that Sunday, abounding in steadfast love. Take the term abounding first. He's, he's rich with this thing. He's full with it. He's overflowing with it. It's springing out from him. And what is it that's springing out from him? Steadfast love. Playing a musical instrument, um, I listen to music a lot. Um, and the world's music has an appeal, but it's so empty when it comes to the lyrics. It's so songs. Um, I don't know if you know it. Hey, won't you play another somebody done somebody wrong song? Um, it, it talks about love in that way, acknowledging the weakness of human love, the frailty of human love, that it's unsatisfying and it's not dependable. But that's true of human love so often. Our world is filled with the broken uh, relationships in that human love. And, and I think um, sometimes we need to listen to that, that worldly music to appreciate the steadfast love that God has allowed us to experience is because of him. He says he's abounding in steadfast love. Well, really, that's the only real love, right? Look at 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about love. Love never fails. It endures. It endures. It, it perseveres. It, it, it puts up with. Um, it never fails. And so steadfast love is really the only real love that, that, that that's what real love is. It's steadfast. But God is abounding in that steadfast love. It's like God said to us, once regardless of your faults and all your ways, I will love you forever. That's what God says to us. And so we're invited to come to pray because of that love. And then we're required to pray or have a necessity to pray because of God's justice. He says, I will by no means clear the guilty. And so we're driven to pray uh, to him for prayer because we're in trouble. Because we're in need, because we are part of that guilty, and we absolutely, absolutely don't deserve it, um, because we we find ourselves guilty, and so it, it it should be encouraging to us that we can come and pray to God that way. And then the last part of that chapter dealt with Moses 
being with God and communing with God to the degree that his, his countenance, his whole face was changed. Um, think of how that ought to be true with us. Our face ought to be changed. Now, we're not saying that we have to smile all the time and have a fake or feigned joy or happiness. Um, sometimes, as, as Chris doesn't respond all the time, and, and that's, that's not true. Um, we should be real, but we should have real joy. And so our communion with God ought to do something to us. It ought to impact us. Ask yourself the question, how, or let's put it, that's the past tense version. Let's put it in the present tense. How is my communion with God changing me? How is it changing my perspective of life? How is it bringing me to hope? How is it um, changing me in my characters? In how is it changing me in ways that others can see and observe? If you remember what's happening with Moses, he wasn't even aware that others were looking and observing, but they were and they could. And, and so it, it is with us as we commune with God. In other words, as we spend time with God, um, appreciating his goodness, his grace, his love, his mercy, um, being embraced by it. And um, as we spend time there, oh, your faith. How does what you love show your faith in God? I can turn that around and say, how does what you fear show your commune and your, um, your time, your fellowship with God? How is that fellowship affecting what you fear? How is that fellowship affecting what you like, what you dislike, what you no longer enjoy? Um, how you go about your daily activities. How is that communing with God impacting the way you go about your daily activities? The, the mindset that you have uh, as you go about your daily activities. Um, how is that impacted? How is that impacted by your time with the Lord? Then a practical question. How are you spending time with the carving out that time? Um, I think there's, a, there's an aspect where um, we need to have special time with the Lord because if, if, if you don't make money with God. But there's also an aspect of where it ought to be a part of our, our regular, it's like breathing. It ought to be a part of our regular activity is that you don't have to, you won't always have time to get away and be with the Lord. You're going to have to commune with the Lord on your stressful job. You're gonna have to commune with the Lord as you attend to, to six ch sick children as a mother or as a father. You're gonna have to commune with the Lord in your day-to-day -day activities. Have you found a way uh, to do that? Um, to, to think, reflect, appreciate God even in most difficult or trying situations. Have you, have you found a, a way to do that. A ask God to, to 
open your eyes and show him maybe that's a, a, a reminder to you uh, to, to look to God, to, to reflect on him, to, um, to, to, to think, um, to acknowledge his presence and, and what he's doing and what he's been doing uh, in your life. I always thought um, kind of the conversation came up on Sunday about um, angels, and we were t I guess we were talking about the glow on a angel uh, uh, above him. Um, I always thought that um, how rude it must be for us to fail to acknowledge God. Um, one of the things we do as human beings, if I come into your presence and you don't speak to me, I consider that rude, and you consider that rude. You don't acknowledge my presence. Uh, you know, talk as if I'm not even there. That's, that's kind of a, a rude thing to do. How rude are we to not acknowledge God's presence? He has a continual presence with us. Um, are we acknowledging that, that he is there? He said he'll never leave us nor forsake us, and sometimes we act like he's not there and like he has forsaken. How rude is that? when he's right time to acknowledge him, uh, to recognize him, and to recognize his work. One of the things that, that gets us out of our dangerous human mindset is simply reflect on God and, and who he is and what he's doing and what he's been doing. We all almost need to say, God, um, I'm in a technical situation, but I know you are in control because... And say why. State it. Because you made heaven and earth. And you have all things in your hand. Because you made me and set a time for me to be born. And, and you are in control of all things. Because there's nothing, absolutely nothing outside of you. So as you begin to acknowledge that, your, perspe your perspective changes. And you, you, you will have to deal with some tough things. Okay, God, you are in control. Why am I struggling? Why am I going through a hardship? But at least you'll be comforted with the presence that yeah, I'm going through a hardship, but I can't deny that you are in control. Means it's hardship now, but it won't always stay that way. And then we look at the pattern of Jesus's life, and we realize that suffering comes before glorification, and that same thing we'll experience as well. So it it is spending that time with God and um, being refreshed. In his parent, in his presence. That's one of the. I'll say this before I close. That's one of the odd things of this part of Exodus is what we see is the people of God are afraid of God's presence, and yet the man of God, Moses, representing there, finds um, peace and and encourage. That's a miracle. <laughs> Not even think about food. He is so filled in the presence of God. At that his everyday activities, is, I bet he, he came from that like, how long has it been since I, I didn't even think about eating? So it's that kind of thing. We know what that's like when we get engrossed in something and we forget to eat um, because something else is so, mu so much more fulfilling for us that we didn't even have to think about that basic need that we have. Good evening, saints. Going to be continuing our meditation through the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> and we've been talking about this book about that some consider this to be a difficult book. And it is some difficulties 
and understanding this book. But when God opens it up for you, oh, it's such a sweet book because it brings together so much. I believe that if you truly understand this book, you start to look at the Old Testament differently. You look at the church age differently. You look at Jesus differently. You understand the law a lot better. All these things come because of this book. And so, we know that the book is about three things. So let's just listen in reverse order, least important to most important. Least important being the three ages. There are three ages. There was the age before Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and brought a new age we call the church age. In previous ages, David could say, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. We don't have to pray that. But then there's going to be an age to come where we will physically see God. He will no longer be invisible. He will be in his presence. And then there's the second most important, and that is the Son of God, who is Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's better than the angels. He's more important than Moses, which leads to the most important part. So believe in him. So, we get into chapter 4. And it says this, therefore, while the promise of earning, of entering, sorry, not earning, you can't earn that. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For, who, for we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward and the words already quoted today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts for Joshua had given them rest God would not have spoken of another day later on so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What is he saying? What is he saying? He starts off, he says, you know, there's still this promise to enter his rest that we haven't discussed yet. So he's talking to the reader, you know, very conversationally. Hey, you know, I mentioned his rest. 
I didn't really delve into this, but he said they would not enter his rest. So why didn't they enter it? Because they didn't believe. Now, I got a problem with a lot of churches, even churches that we're very friendly with. And here's the problem. People like to think believing is just an intellectual exercise. Do you understand the tenets of the faith, they'll say. Well, there's only one problem with that, right? And I'm not saying you shouldn't try to understand the tenets of the faith, but let's just say that I went to Wesley and I said, hey, Wesley, how were you born? Right? Or if I talk to Jordy, how were you born? Or I talk to Ethan, how were you born? The older they get, maybe the more they got a better idea of how they were born and how life was brought into this world. But the question should be asked, can you be brought into this world and not understood how you got in here? And the reason I say that is because we sometimes will put this understanding of theology as if that's a prerequisite to be saved. Let me put it another way. You truly don't understand the things of God until you have been saved. Therefore, it is not something that you understand that gets you saved. It's just another works-based salvation method. But it's just intellectual. When you understand these things, you'll be saved. Let's think what you need to understand to be saved. You need to understand that God loves you, that God holds you accountable, and that God can save you. You may not even know more than that. And let's just think about somebody in the Old Testament. Somebody in the Old Testament, normal guy who was not named in the Bible, who might have believed. Did he know who Jesus was? He did not. But he knew who God was. He could look into God's law and see that God judges sin. He could look into God's law and see, I can't keep that law. He could look into God's law and say, God has made means for me for grace. And I'm not quite 100% sure how this all works, God, but I need you to save me. And then we look at our current age. We can come to somebody and say, Jesus died for you. Now, do they know that some people believe that when Jesus died, he went to hell? Now, that's not a true belief, but some people believe it. Can they still be saved believing that? Yes, they can. Some people believe in a rapture. I don't believe in a rapture anymore. I used to. Some people believe in a rapture. Is that save you or not save you? It doesn't. There's lots of things about the faith that are not just intellectual. And one of the things that I notice is he says, we ought to strive to enter that rest. Because here's a better way of thinking about belief. It's not an intellectual exercise. It is a discipline and a way of life. Jesus is not just asking you to believe in him harder. Jesus is asking you to rest in him which is different than just understanding that he's God, which is different than just understanding that he's in control of all things because you can understand that and then when you face a problem, you can shrink back from it. 
James said it this way. You believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. If it was just understanding truth that got you saved, Satan would be the best saint ever. Because he understands spiritual realities in ways that we never will. That's not it. There's something about trusting in Jesus. That's not just something about understanding our theology. And it has to do with our reliance on him. It has to do with humility, right? God casts down the pride, but he lifts up the humble. What do we have to do? We have to say, God, I can't save myself. But the intellectualization of Christianity is saying, I can learn myself into heaven. I can learn so much. I got it. I figured it all out. You talk to some of these pastors and you be like, man, you don't even need the Bible. You know it all. I don't need to read Hebrews. I just need to read your, your latest book. Is that really what God would have us to do? He says, therefore, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What's the biggest thing that keeps people from believing? It's not an intellectual gap. It is stubbornness. It is resisting God's will. So he says, let us therefore strive so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What sort of disobedience? Stubbornness. Thinking God doesn't see. Getting away with it. Not understanding the character of God, which is intellectual, but not only just understanding, acting on it. And that's why he gets to the end, for the word of God is living and active. You ought to believe his word because it has consequences. It doesn't play with you. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierced in a division of soul and spirit. Now, I don't even necessarily know what the difference between soul and spirit is. I do not. I know the people who try to figure out the difference. You, you They don't know. But the word is so sharp that it can tell the difference between things that we can't see. It can tell who's trusting, who's not trusting. It can tell who's play, play, who's not. It can do all that. And what we need to do is say, God, I rely on you even when I don't. We need to be like the man who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but I got doubt sometimes. And it's not me trying to force my mind not to have doubts that's going to let me be saved. It's going to be me relying on you, trusting in you. And I show that trust by being disciplined to stay in your ways. I say no to sin, not because I'm trying to earn my way into heaven, but because I believe you are actively judging what we do here. And I'm going to have to face you one day, and I don't want to have to face you and explain what I just did. I believe you're a real God. And I'm going to prove that I believe you're real because I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to deal with your people a certain way. I know my actions are being counted. And that 
it's not just up here. Amen.